Morning, Christ Church. I leaned over to Father Herb in the first service after hearing that gospel reading and said, wow, I'm really excited to preach out of Revelation and not the gospels this morning. That is a hard passage, a hard teaching from Jesus, and we'll save it for another day, uh, but it won't be this one. There are moments in the Bible that provide such clarity of who God is and who we are in light of God. It's like you're standing on a on a mountaintop and just looking out for miles to see. I'm going to share a couple of these with you. Think of the end of, chapter, of Romans chapter 8, Paul's letter to the Romans, and you think you hear these phrases, God, who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who could separate us from this love of God? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Can anything separate you from the love of God? You stand on a mountain peak and you realize God's love is more powerful towards you than death itself, more powerful than your own sin. Think about Matthew 16. Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he says, who do the crowds say that I am? And they murmur, they stammer, they say, maybe John the Baptist, maybe uh, one of the prophets who's come back to life. And Jesus turns the tables and he says, but you, who do you say that I am? Remember, Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the King. And there's this moment of clarity that in looking at Jesus, it's not just looking at another human, but it is God come to earth, the great Messiah. Today, we're in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're continuing in our study of Revelation, and we are coming to a mountain peak. We are coming to a Matterhorn. We are coming to an Everest. We are coming to a place of seeing God almost more clearly than any other place in the New Testament, I think. It's tucked away here in the middle of Revelation. In fact, what we're studying today, Revelation 4 and 5, it's the very reason I was so excited to get to preach this series, because I think this scene is one of the most important scenes. If you understand this scene, you see God clearly, and then you see yourself in light of who he is. After several chapters of writing letters to the churches, suddenly today we're going to be swept up into the heavenly realm, and we're going to lose what's familiar. You know, we can read the letters to the seven churches. That kind of makes sense to us. We understand how letters work. We understand how emails work. Today, we're going to get swept up into heaven, and we're going to see beasts flying around with heads like oxes and eyes all over their bodies, and we're going to wonder, where are we? Where have we been transported to? We have left the safety of the harbor, and we have set sail into the expanse of Revelation and the rest of the book of Revelation. We're going to be swimming in deep waters. But today is the hinge. It's the hinge that gets us from the letters, from the, from the persecution, from the, the, the trials that the churches are facing. It's the, the hinge that gets us to understand what God's going to do in light of that. And you remember an apocalypse, like we've talked about, is trying to do one thing. It's trying to uncover. It's trying to reveal from God's perspective what's going on. So you can think of, again, that moment in the Wizard of Oz where Toto pulls the curtain back and suddenly we see the great Wizard of Oz is nothing more than a man behind a curtain. That's the apocalypse, an apocalyptic moment. You can think of flying, taking off in the airplane and looking down and seeing all of a city stretched out beneath you. That's an apocalyptic viewpoint. Today, we're getting a view from the center of the universe. This is scene three in Revelation. 
And um, scene, remember scene one, the overture, scene two, the message to the seven churches, scene three, it's what I call the reality. I've shown this image before it comes. It's adapted from the Bible Project, and um, it really gives you a concise overview of Revelation. We've been in the setting, and now we come to the reality of all of Revelation. Another way you can think about chapter four and chapter five, we are at the center of all things. One commentator calls these chapters backstage of the universe. We're getting behind the scenes on how the universe is run. Better yet, who is running the universe? And you're going to see the gospel being artistically proclaimed. We're used to hearing the gospel proclaimed by preachers. We're used to Paul preaching the gospel, giving us didactic instruction. We don't know what to do with the poet John here in Revelation. Today, John is going to artistically paint the gospel for us. So artists, poets, storytellers, faith and arts community, take notes today. The church needs you to powerfully proclaim the gospel in a way that reaches the heart, in a way that often sermons can't do. I'm saying that as a preacher. I love, I love preaching, and I love logic, and I love all, but we need, we need works of art that touch our hearts. We need both the preachers and the poets to tell the whole story of God. And so today, we're going to encounter an artistic, symbolic tour de force through Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. These two chapters go together. If you have your Bible, open up to chapter 4. This is before the reading that we had uh, in Revelation. We'll be in Revelation 4. That'll set the scene going into Revelation 5. Revelation 4 verse 1. After this, meaning after these letters to all the churches, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Now, you remember the last time we heard a door, we heard it last week, um, it was in Revelation 3.20, this letter to the Laodiceans. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Well, today that door is opened. And rather than Jesus just coming in to eat with us, we are swept up into the heavenly realm. He's, John is going to be taken up into heaven. And a couple things to note, this is not heaven in the future tense. This is present heaven, present day reality. And John is not on clouds floating around with a harp, wearing a loincloth or something, whatever your vision of, you know, this cartoon vision of heaven. You know that. You know that's not the vision, but it, I have to say it because put that out of your mind. Where is he right now? He has gone into the presence of God, to the active domain of God. He's standing in heaven. He's standing in the place where God's will is always perfectly obeyed. You think of the prayer. Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the presence of God, his will is always perfectly obeyed. John is being swept up into that reality. And once he's in the spirit and there before him is a throne and there's someone sitting on this throne. The one there has the appearance of jasper and a ruby, and there's a rainbow that's shown like an emerald encircling the throne. Now, John is looking, and he sees a someone sitting on the throne. John never identifies who this someone is who's sitting on the throne, but it's going to become absolutely clear. See, John is a masterful storyteller, and he's giving you all the clues through these symbols to figure out who is he talking about. He's talking about the one who has a throne in heaven. 
And he says there's these beautiful and precious gems, this jasper, this ruby, this emerald. Now remember, these are in the days before like LED light shows, before house parties, right? So like seeing, what, what was he talking about? He's saying these precious gems, they catch light and they reflect it back in this like brilliant red and green. This rainbow kaleidoscope of colors is encircling this someone's head on the throne, Throughout the Old Testament, the Jews said that God is so holy, so other, so transcendent that we won't even mention his name for fear that we pronounce it incorrectly, that we have a reverence for who he is because he's so transcendent, so other. John is standing in that tradition, and he's giving us clues, the someone on the throne is no less than God Almighty, but he won't name him. He stands in this tradition, this holy other figure, this holy other God, this high and lifted up God above all the cosmos. He's standing before him, and it's like John saying, in his presence, I can't even say who I'm in front of right now, but I'm in his presence. That's where I've been caught up to. And John says he's seated on a throne. If you've got a Bible in front of you, just like highlight underline, circle that word throne. John's going to use it 43 times throughout his letter to Revelation. It's one of the main words that describes Revelation. What's a throne? A throne represents who's in charge, who's the boss, who's got authority in a certain place. In fact, one of the ways I've said you might think about Revelation is a theology of power. Who has power in this world? Who sits on the throne? Of those 43 times throne shows up in Revelation, two of them talk about Satan. Satan has a throne in this place. Or the false beast, one of the followers of Satan, appears to sit on a throne in this area. It's like the satanic power wants to appear as if it has power, but he doesn't really sit on the throne. See, John will talk about difficulties that we face in life, and he says, it will always seem to you like Satan's in control. It will seem to you as you go through life like your life is out of control and God's not paying attention. But he says, hang in there, hold on, because there's only one who sits on the throne, and it is God Almighty. Verse 4, surrounding the throne are these 24 other thrones, and seated on them are 24 elders. They're dressed in white. They have crowns of gold on their head, these leaders, these rulers. Who are these 24? They represent, 24, they represent 12 and 12, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. All around the throne are the people of God. All the people of God are there, represented, uh, praying and praising God, and then Beyond them, in the center around the throne, there's these four living creatures. The first living creature like a lion. The second was an ox. The third with the face of a man. The fourth like a flying eagle. And day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And you're wondering, a lion, an ox, a human, with if you've got your Bibles in front of you, they're covered in eyes all around. There's six wings shooting out of them. And you're thinking, what is it? John, where have you gone? Or what have you been looking at right now that you're trying to describe? What is this that you're looking at? And commentators will give you all sorts of different ideas. Artists will try and draw. And if you see like a pictorial representation of this, you're kind of like, no. 
I don't want to be near that. He's describing, though, these beasts. One of the best ways to understand them is they represent all of creation. They just, they represent all of creation. And these beasts, these beings who represent all of creation, they have one task, which is to forever praise God. They are forever singing the Sanctus, the holy, holy, holy. What are they, what are they doing? They are doing all creation at all times is meant to be praising God. God made his creation. It is like a mirror rebounding back his glory, his light to him. That's why in all creation, you can think about just creation scattered. Think of something small and odd, an anteater or a, a platypus. Think of something large and big, a sequoia living hundreds of years. All of creation, the vastness of the oceans down to the anthills are praising God in their very being. That's why you've maybe heard the, the phrase before, um, happy is a clam. Clams are happy. They sit at the bottom of the ocean praising God, doing what they were made to do. If only we could become like clams, right? But you remember the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Do you remember what it says? What's the chief end of man? The chief, what's, what's the purpose of humanity? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were made as part of creation to ascribe worth honor, praise, beauty, majesty to the one who sits on the throne. And these four living creatures do that perpetually, saying this is all of your creation, God, is meaning to echo back your goodness, your glory, your praise at all times. We're finding out here we're in the, we're in the center. We're at the core, the essence of all of the universe. And we're finding at the very center of the universe, it's, it's a who, a person sitting on a throne who's created, who's sustaining, who's ordering the universe around which everything else is orbiting. Here's the point. You are not on that throne, and neither am I. Nor for these Christians, neither is Caesar, nor is the Roman Empire, nor for us today is any leader or any other empire. We honor we do not divinize our leaders. There is only one who sits on the throne. Chapter 4 wants to show us there is a throne. Chapter 5 wants to paint the picture then. Who is in the throne? Who is sitting there? Let's turn to chapter 5, verse 1. And this picks up with our reading for today. John writes, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. By the way, writing on both sides. Someone has written a lot on this scroll. You would not normally do this, uh, but someone has extensively written on the scroll. And it's sealed with these seven wax seals. Then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break open these seals and unroll or open the scroll? No one. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth could open the scroll, could even look inside of it. And I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, what is this scroll? It's so important. You know, the commentators take a lot of different views on what this scroll might be. And um, for some, they think, you know what? The Old Testament is pretty thick. There's writing on both sides of the scroll. Maybe someone has in minutia written out like all of the Old Testament on this scroll. Maybe that's one thing. 
The seven seals. In the ancient Roman world, if you were a wealthy person, uh, you were making a last will and testament, you would actually have six other wealthy friends with you, and you would all, after writing up your will, you'd roll it up, and you would imprint your signet ring on it. All seven of you would. So maybe this is like some sort of last will and testament. But I think John actually gives us clues to figure out what this scroll actually represents. First of all, notice, uh, notice what John's doing. He's weeping. It doesn't just say he's weeping once. It says he wept and he wept and he wept. He's having a nervous breakdown that no one is able to open this scroll. And yet he's in the presence of God. What this scroll represents, and as you uh, read throughout Revelation, what becomes clear is this scroll is detailing how is God going to fix the world. Here's the plan in this scroll for how his kingdom is finally one day going to come to earth. Here's the outline for how God is going to right every wrong, how he's going to fix every brokenness in the world, and not just the world, but in our lives. To paraphrase for someone else, here is the plan for how God is going to make every shadow pass away, all written in this scroll. You think about our own lives, you think about the last couple of years, perhaps, in the headlines that we've seen in the past few years, think of just headlines going back 30, 40, 50 years, your whole lifespan. You think of things like the Cold War, Gulf War, rampant inflation, 9-11, racism, misogyny, abuse, false convictions. You can move to the personal. You can think of sin, ways that you have hurt other people. Ways that you have been hurt, self-centeredness, broken families, addiction that you can't overcome no matter how many times you try, addiction that others can't overcome no matter how many times they try, leading to more pain and brokenness. John weeps and weeps and weeps because to open this scroll would reveal God's plan. God, how are you going to fix this? And yet there's no one who's able to open the scroll and fix this, no one in heaven no one on earth, no one under the earth. How will you bring rightness to this wrong world, Lord? Verse five, one of the elders then said to me, don't weep. Look, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John hears this message from um, a mighty angel. He hears, wait a minute, there is one who's strong enough one who's powerful enough, a great lion, a roaring uh, beast, a, a majestic conqueror, one of the descendants of David. He is strong enough. John hears that, a Messiah, a conqueror, and then verse 6, he turns, expecting to see this lion, and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. John hears about a conquering lion, and then he turns to look, and he sees a slaughtered lamb. This is the vision of the slain lamb, not the ferocious lion. Now, this word, this slain lamb, this is John's favorite picture for who Jesus is. Shows up 28 times in Revelation uh, Jesus being described as the lamb. In comparison, Jesus Christ, the, his name, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, only shows up seven times. So whenever John wants to talk about who Jesus is, he says he is the slain lamb. 
And you notice where he's standing at the center of the throne. This lamb shares the throne with God himself. And if it wasn't surprising enough to see a lamb instead of a lion, John is emphasizing the smallness of the lamb. He's using a diminutive in the Greek. He doesn't use the normal word for lamb. Um, Here's the English rendering of what he he sees. Then I saw a a lammy or a lambkins uh, standing in the center of the throne. And it's, um, if you're laughing and it seems a little farcical, like that's kind of the whole point. You're expecting a conquering Messiah. You get a slaughtered lamb. That's the picture of the one standing in the center of the world. The shock of this reversal, the central mystery of revelation, the reality of the universe is that at the center of the universe, the control room of the universe, the who that sits on the throne is the slain lamb. He has conquered, and remember we talked about that conquering last week. He has conquered not through a show of force, but in giving his own life away, a surrendering unto death. This image of the slain lamb, it's become important in Christian history. You're looking at um, the symbol right now called the Agnes Day, and um, this is just one modern iteration of this. Uh, you see the lamb. I don't know if you can see, he is uh, bleeding from his chest. Uh, he's standing on a scroll with seven seals. Uh, there is uh, communion elements in front of him. There's a halo behind his head indicating this is Jesus, and he's carrying the conquering flag. Agnes Day the Lamb of God who has conquered. See this next image, this is from, um, this is the Ghent altarpiece from Van Eyck. This is uh, 15th, 16th century, somewhere around there, medieval. You can see the lamb at the center of that land. He's been painted into the medieval uh, landscape. And around him, you see all the creatures bowing down. He's standing actually on a communion table. And written underneath in Latin under the, the lamb is, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, in the Lamb of God, this Lamb of God image, you combine both the Passover lamb from Exodus 12. Remember the Passover lamb that if the blood was smeared on the the door posts, then the, the angel of death would not, they would pass over and not visit upon that house. You combine that image with what we read today, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. The suffering servant, the Messiah King, is the Passover lamb. They are one in the same figure. We, um, we have a, our youth group around here. And um, I love, they do a mission trip every year in the city, here in the city. It's called Love Where We Live. And rather than going other places, and that's important to go other places, um, this trip just focuses on loving our own city, loving ministry partnerships that we have, working with organizations like Mission Possible, loving the East Side City, loving uh, those who are in material poverty in tangible ways. And I love when the youth went on the trip this year and they chose a t-shirt logo. This is the image that they chose. This Agnes Day, Lamb of God, who takes away the, center, the sin of the world, standing the center of the universe. The Lamb who's given his, his life for the sake of the world. Remember I talked about the importance of symbols way back in week one of this series. We talked about the importance of symbols. You remember we all sang together that Toby Keith song? Do y'all remember singing that? We didn't really sing it. We, <laughs> we looked at the words up there, and I talked about one of the ways to understand Uh, all of Revelation, you have to remember it's symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism. There's artistry going on. And so um, our first view of Jesus in in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, Jesus looks like this. It's superhero Jesus. 
He's got this bronzed body. It looks like he's just stepped out of a fire. There's lasers being shot out of his eyes. Uh, it's, it's what we expect of the conquering king. You know, like I, if, if it were me and I was to give an image of when I think of a conqueror, uh, I would probably take like a T-Rex, you know, just some like the biggest thing that I could think of and say, that's the conquering image. And we see in Revelation chapter one, the superhero Jesus in Revelation chapter five, we see slain lamb. And John is saying the two are one and the same. The slain lamb is the one who has all the power. He is the one who is able to conquer, but his conquering is not by force. His conquering is by surrender a surrendering unto death. The lamb is John's favorite image because he wants to work to convince us of this, that true power gives itself away. God's self is revealed in a love that bleeds. This cosmic revolution shows us a God who is never detached from us, never disinterested from us, never far away. Instead, in this image, we see a God who comes near, who suffers with us, and doesn't just leave us in our suffering, but transfigures our suffering. Every pain that you felt, every moment of sin that you have given into is possible fodder to be transfigured, to be transformed, to be remade by this suffering lamb who is also the great and high king. You know, sometimes we talk, um, as a Christian, we think, like, I should be over this or that sin. Like, I just feel like I should be done with it. I don't know why I keep falling back into the same sin over and over again. Like, if I really were more advanced in my faith, I, I probably wouldn't deal with this thing anymore. And again, to that, here is an image of one who is willing to continue to bleed for you the center of the universe. You cannot outsin God's love for you. You can't walk away from his mercy, no matter how hard you try. All you can do is open up and accept God this much loves you, that the picture of who he is at the center of the universe is a slain lamb for you personally. You receive that, you accept it, you live it out. In fact, one thing I'd like to invite you to do right now is, if I could, um, think in your own life, where are moments that you have just felt the lowest? Maybe it's something that's happened to you in your own life. You've received a medical diagnosis that changed your life. You received news that altered your life. Maybe it's something you've suffered. Maybe it's an ongoing condition that you live with. Try and picture that moment when you first heard that news. Or... Think about some, something that you've done in your life that put you at the lowest, the way you hurt others, the way you treated others, the way that you wish, I, I wish I could undo, I don't know what I was doing, I was out of my mind, I was absolutely acting foolish and ridiculous, but I did it. And now this thing that I never thought would happen has happened. I had an affair. I never thought I would do that, and I did it. I've completely become so addicted to this thing, I've lost my job, and I never thought I would do that, but I did it, and it's happened, and I wish I had a takeover or take. Whatever it is, get that moment called up in your mind, and then superimpose this image over the top of it. Here is the slain lamb of God 
who loves you at your lowest to transform you, to bring you into his presence. Why does God allow evil? Why does he allow any evil in your life? I can't tell you that. No Christian can ever actually totally answer that question for any particular evil. What we can answer is God God gives us an answer relationally. He gives us the answer of the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. I don't know why in any one instance, but I know that in any evil, we are never abandoned. We are never cast off by ourselves, never alone, never outside of God's redemption. Slain lamb is the one who is on the throne at the center of the universe. Now, you might wonder, again, does he have power enough to make things different? Does he have power enough to change the mess that I've made of my life, the mess that I've made of others' lives, the suffering that I've had? Does he actually have power, though? I get that he's slain lamb and he can suffer with me. Does he have power to do something about it? And John gives us another picture. He says, look again at the lamb. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen a lamb that looks like that before. Where are these seven horns? Where are these seven eyes? Again, he's speaking symbolically. Horns here means power. And you remember the number seven means complete. He has complete power. Do you know what we call that? Omnipotence. Then he has seven eyes. Eyes here meaning vision, capacity to see things. Seven eyes, complete vision. Do you know what we call that? Omniscience. And then it's the seven spirits of God. We never hear the phrase Holy Spirit in Revelation. Rather, we get the complete spirits of God. That's how John wants to write about the Holy Spirit. And wherever the seven spirits of God, says they're sent out into all the world. Again, omnipresence. We are talking about a slain lamb who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He is powerful to transform your life. Whatever the lowest point is, he is powerful to transform that. When is the last time you've heard a leader say, my power is in laying down my own ambitions, my own desires for power, for my employees or my constituents? Can you imagine a presidential campaign slogan that said, I'm willingly defeated for your good. Vote for me. (laughs) This picture of power that Jesus is offering, conversely, think about this. Have you ever been around a leader or maybe a politician, business leader, who has given themselves away for the good of their employees or their constituents, you're drawn to them. They're so magnetic because they're emulating the lamb. And what happens next, and in response to this, can only be described as an expanding ripple of worship in all of creation. As throughout and surrounding the throne, different figures begin to realize, actually, the lamb has come forward, and he has taken this scroll, and he is going to unfurl it first the four living creatures begin to get a glimpse of this. And as the four living creatures do, they start to sing a song again. But they're no longer singing to the Lord God Almighty. Instead, look who they're singing to now. They see that he's taking the, the scroll and they say, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. The four living creatures modulate their worship and they begin singing praise to the Lamb himself. And this worship spills out even wider as all the angels of heaven, the whole company of heaven. John says thousands upon thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands, a number too big to count. All see the lamb taking the scroll, and they begin to join this chorus as well. 
saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise, and then swelling into a crescendo of worship, all creation, every creature, every race, every nation, the heavens, the sea, the dead themselves come forth and sing worship to God and to the lamb, saying, to him who sits onto the throne. And to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures say, Amen. Amen to the Lamb who can open this scroll. Amen to the Lamb at the center of the universe. John is giving us a vision that's bigger than just an individual getting saved. You know, we so often talk about salvation means I accept Jesus into my heart. We are being accepted into God's heart. We are moving into his space. This vision here is cosmic in scope that all areas of creation would be redeemed, economies redeemed, societies redeemed, that the universe itself, God is on a universal rescue plan, and it all passes through the slain lamb. You know, there's an ancient idea that um, whatever we treasure most, this ancient idea, whatever we treasure most, we put that at the center of our town. It's an ancient idea. Whatever we treasure most, you put it at the center of your town, and you just kind of live life around it. Um, You can think about this in ancient societies. You would build a town around the temple. Put the temple, because, you know, the temple is that connecting place between heaven and earth. So put that at the center of the town, and then build the town around that. In fact, the Jews did that in the Old Testament. You read about Mount Zion. That's right there in the center. Then you build everything else around it. We do this in the modern world as well. When you think about the center, um, we put flags in the center of our land, and we raise up a flag, and we say, this flag uh, transcends us. It unites us together. It gives us something common that, that we plant at the center of our land. We're the people who are united around this particular thing. To be a Christian is to recognize there is actually only one center around which everything rotates, and it's the slain lamb. Plant the cross at the center. A Christian is one who recognizes the cross, the slain lamb, is centered. The church are the people who are trying to live under the power and authority of this lamb. So much of Christian life, again, talks about inviting Jesus into our hearts. But if he is center, Revelation shows us God is inviting us into his heart. Jesus is inviting us, drawing us up into his heart to take up a cross to love others, to forgive others, to serve others when it is painful. A voice is calling to all of us, come up, enter into my presence, join join the worship of all creation, adoring the Lamb. And let me just add, it can be easy to go to church every week and to hear sermon after sermon, but this is invitation for you today. And perhaps maybe for the first time to say, Jesus, I accept this call. You are inviting me into your presence I say, yes, I respond. Draw me now into your presence. I want to join the chorus, all creation singing praise and adoration to the Lamb of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.